Have you ever been deep into the second half of a race when things start to fall apart? It could be bonking, it could be cramping, it could be gut issues or flavour fatigue. Almost all of us have been there at some point. In the space of just a few minutes, your carefully constructed nutrition plan goes out the window. It's so easy to lose your head in situations like this, which is why on today's podcast, we're sharing with you a simple framework that you can use when things go wrong on race day to help you refocus, reset, and go about addressing your issue, replacing panic with a plan. It might just help salvage your race, preventing it from becoming a DNF, or sometimes maybe even turning it into a great result. Hello and welcome to Fueling Endurance, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined to have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. And on today's episode, we're speaking to legendary coach Jason Coop about a framework he put together to help endurance athletes when things go wrong on race day. But before we get to that, this episode of Fueling Endurance is brought to you by the Fueling Endurance ebook. This ebook provides comprehensive written articles covering the contents of the first two years of the podcast. At over 260 pages, it's packed with practical tips and suggestions, tables, diagrams, and flowcharts, as well as stories and quotes from expert researchers, nutrition practitioners, coaches, and athletes who have been guests on the podcast. Each part of the book can be read as a standalone article or as a section of articles on a particular topic. It provides an invaluable resource for the runner, cyclist, triathlete, or coach seeking to improve their nutrition game and addresses 49 of the most common questions or challenges they face. Everything from what should I eat before my long training session to why do I cramp during exercise and is low carb right for me. There's also bonus videos to step you through some of the more technical diagrams in the book, which you can access via a QR code included inside the ebook. The Fueling Endurance ebook is now available from our website, fuelingendurance.com, and also now available for Kindle via Amazon. The sales of the book help support the cost of running this podcast, and we really appreciate each and every one of you who purchases the book. Also, if you want to get practical sports nutrition news, tips and tricks delivered directly to your inbox every couple of weeks, you can join the Fueling Endurance email newsletter. It's completely free. You can sign up at fuelingendurance.com. That's fueling with one L. And finally, if you have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter, aka X, or contact us via our website, fuelingendurance.com. And a few updates and announcements before we get into this one, Steph, and just on the topic of social media, just this week, we actually opened up a Threads account as well. So you can find us again at Fueling Endurance on Threads, just like you can through Instagram. So it's only just started, but we'll get some content on there happening over the next couple of weeks. But a couple of announcements. First of all, Steph, there's a study happening at Monash University. We're looking for some cyclists and triathletes. We are our, we are indeed. If you are aged between 18 and 20, uh, and not 25, that's a very short cutoff, isn't it? <laughs> if you are aged between 18 and 65 
and you're interested in uh, taking part in this study. It involves us looking at the accuracy of a wrist-worn wearable device, which is going to be used for measuring hydration status. The study involves three visits to Monash Uni and the first visit you'll be there for about one and a half hours and then the other two you'll be there for five to six hours and for three of those hours you can do your own work and work on the laptop or watch TV and chill out. You'll also complete a VO2 max test on your first visit and you'll ride for two hours at 60% of your VO2 max in the other two visits. And you'll receive a full fitness and body composition assessment, as well as a $100 gift voucher once the trials are completed. So you've got to stick with us. And to get involved, please contact Pascal Young at Monash University via her email, which is pascal, P-A-S-C-A-L-E dot young at monash.edu or see the information on our social media accounts. All right. And one other announcement before we finish, Steph, and this is a bit of a sad one, unfortunately, but you can let us know the news. Uh, very sadly, Al, I am leaving the the podcast unfortunately very hard decision difficult decision and I've not been wanting to but there's not enough time in the day um and just yeah struggling to to do the juggle at the moment and I guess there's a few things that I need to try and focus my time on so yeah sadly you you won't have to put up with me anymore (laughs) uh I'll miss our I'll miss our chats and I'll very much miss yeah talking to the wonderful people that we've been able to have on as as guests and meet along the way. Mm, absolutely. You won't miss talking to me, Steph, because we still work in the same building. So. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, you still got to put up with me regardless. <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, so I think I'll say at this stage that um, let's call it an indefinite hiatus rather than a leaving. Yeah. So we'll leave the door slightly ajar in case you want to come back in the future, Steph. You're more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, fair enough. So big thanks to you for your contributions to the podcast over the last three and a bit years. I was looking the other day, it's just over three years and 123 podcast episodes we've done together. And obviously a big thanks because the podcast was your idea in the first place. So had you not come to me with the idea during the lockdown in 2020, we wouldn't be sitting here right now having this conversation with everyone. So Massive thanks for, for that and, and for all the contributions to the podcast. Obviously, you'll still be involved with Fueling Endurance because you're a co-author on the ebook, which people are still able to get their hands on. And obviously, you've got the video around sort of gut issues that's attached to that ebook as well. So people who purchase the ebook get access to that video that you recorded also. So people will still hear your voice around. And obviously, if they want to go through the back catalogue of episodes, they'll hear your voice there as well. And <laughs> who knows, maybe we'll even get you on as a guest for something, some stage in the future as well. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I mean, yeah. I am looking to do some some research in, in a particular area, but I won't say anything yet or keep people like wanting to wanting to keep listening to, to see what that's about. That's right. You, you'll just hit me up when it's time to recruit people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this one's an exciting one, Al, and I know you're very excited for this one, so I'll let you do the intro. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, 
yeah, our guest today is Jason Coop, who we have had on the podcast before. It was actually our second anniversary podcast way back at the end of 2022, in November 2022. Jason is a legendary coach in ultra endurance sports, particularly in ultra trail running these days, but he has been a coach in cycling and triathlon in the past as well, and he's based in, in Boulder, Colorado. He also hosts the incredibly successful podcast, Coopcast, which uh, I've been a guest on. I can't remember if you have, Steph, or not. No, no, I think Chris from our lab has as well. Yeah. And his book, Training Essentials for Ultra Running, is now in its second edition and is kind of considered the definitive guide for, for training in the sport. And it's in this book that he has this framework for overcoming setbacks on race day. And Jason's joining us today to share this framework with us how to use it when things are going wrong during your race and to work through some examples of that in action. So you don't have to be an ultra runner to benefit from this framework. While he does have that background, and I guess a lot of the examples that we talk about in this episode relate to trail and ultra running, The you know, as we, we talk about in the episode, really the principles here can apply to just as much to marathon running, to triathlon, particularly long course events, to cycling, mountain biking, any other kind of endurance events where things can potentially go wrong, you know, bonking, cramping, gut issues, flavor fatigue, you know, any of those things, this principle applies really well to. So anywhere there's a chance that something can go wrong, this will be able to help you. So if you've got a race coming up, this is a really good one to listen to in preparation for that event. Awesome. Let's get stuck into it. Jason Coop, welcome back to Fueling Endurance. How are things over there? Starting to warm up or still freezing cold? Nah, they're still freezing cold here. <laughs> I, when you said back to, though, I actually remember that the first time recorded, we recorded, I was in my van. I recorded mm. this on my van. I was on a trip for Thanksgiving, going back to my family in Texas. And I pulled over the side of the road in Amarillo, Texas. And anybody who's a, a native Texan like myself will recognize there's not a whole lot in, in, in Amarillo. It was a quite a, quite a refreshing uh, break from the 13-hour uh, drive that I had from, from Colorado. So I'm very happy to be back. And I'm happy to, to be back in my home office here where uh, I'm a little bit more stable. Yeah, fair enough. I was going to say we can see you. Well, obviously, people won't see this on the podcast, but you can see the running shirts and things in the background that I, I've seen on all your social media stuff, as opposed to I think you had a whole bunch of drawers or things behind you in the van. <laughs> it's not nearly as uh, it's not uh, nearly as eye appealing when I do yeah. record things in the van, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So you just mentioned, obviously, you were on our podcast. It was actually our second anniversary special episode back in November 2022. And I know since then, we we're just talking off air, you know, you've been super busy. I know you've done a heap on social media that, that I've seen, uh, and that would suggest that as well. But I want to focus on something in particular that I think our listeners might be interested in that you've been working on, and that's your relatively new paid monthly publication called Research Essentials in Ultra Running, which began almost 12 months ago, I think in March 2023 and contains a lot of, but not exclusively, nutrition content, but it's all relevant, I guess, to ultra running. Can you tell us a little bit about that publication, sort of who's it for, why you decided to put it together, how it all sort of started? Yeah, I mean, the the it's really a solution to a problem. I've always considered myself a solutions-oriented person in coaching and in life and in, in, and in business. And one of the things that I was starting to recognize across the space of ultra running is just that people were having a hard time interpreting scientific literature. 
and I, I don't need to tell you and staff that even even you guys working in more of an academic and a clinical setting sometimes look at things and you're like, what, what, I don't understand what we should actually take from this. And then you roll that down to the, like the everyday consumer and even coaches like myself who are kind of in, in, ingrained in it. And we have a hard time across the whole spectrum, first figuring out what's good science and what's not so good science and where kind of what, what kind of draws in between and then how to interpret that and then how to aggregate it and things like that. And I, I get questions every single day of every single week about how do I interpret this? And almost all of that I had never heard of before. People see it on social media. They see it in a lay publication and they send it over to me for an, for an opinion. And, and so I had the idea of, okay, let's systematize, let's systematize this a little bit. Let's scour the research specific to ultra running. I'm going to bring in a crack team of people that are way smarter than me with Nick Tiller and Stephanie Howe to put the research under a microscope to analyze it for what it is and then produce a forward facing consumer product. And, and the linchpin and all of that is, is this kind of like book club, which I'm sure, you know, Steph, you and Alan are kind of like used to within your like mutual colleagues. We sit down and, and between Steph Nick and I, we have a more of an academic type of book club around it. Nick brings in a lot of the times the very technical statistics and methods and things like that. Steph is obviously very good on the nutrition and the methods as well. And then I kind of bring in the, the practical elements. And we have a, a longtime colleague of mine, Jim Rutberg, who's a New York Times bestselling author, who's very, very good at taking content in a variety of areas and really alchemizing it so that the end user can actually understand it. He takes that book club format and turns it into a, a, just a wonderful article that we then have uh, very beautiful illustrated, beautifully illustrated by uh, Hillary, Hillary Matheson or Hillary Yang. Hillary, uh, her last name is now Yang since so she's just been married. What we try to do is, is we try to pick things that are very specific to the ultra running crowd, distill it down to its core elements, and then come up with some practical, you know, takeaways from it. And as you guys can imagine, it takes a lot of research in order to actually come up with those things. And so the way that I like to, the, the way that I like to pitch it to peach people is, is 90% of it, you're not going to use until a year from now. And you're going to use it a year from now once you've seen four or five or six kind of like tangentially related pieces of research. And you can then synthesize those into some sort of opinion that you can then that, that, that you can then form into practice. And once again, I'm, I'm really bullish on the on the concept in general, particularly because the the landscape right now is a wash and, and, and AI is going to perpetuate this as well. We might talk about that in a, in a little bit also. The landscape right now is just a wash of really low intellectual, very superficial type of content that does the the end user a disservice because they're getting bombarded with a lot of stuff that is just you know extremely frivolous. We're taking the opposite approach where we're trying to put a lot of time and energy into each one of the articles and make sure that we kind of correctly interpret and articulate those articles such that it can really stand the test of time and people can kind of like, ref, like refer back to it for years and years and years. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. And is it designed primarily for coaches as sort of professional development or for athletes themselves or a bit of both? A, a bit of both. You know, I mean, we, as, as you guys can appreciate, the athletes are getting more sophisticated year and year, uh, year after year in terms of 
the information that they that that they request and that they want to kind of be satiated with. It, it is a little bit higher level, you know. I, I I do not make any bones about there are no quick t- quick hitter takeaways in any of this stuff. We do try to summarize it in some practical elements, but we we do dive into the details, particularly around the statistics and methods and things like that that are extremely important when we're when we're reading academic research. But but it is meant for everybody, and I do think that anybody who is curious about how scientific research can be interpreted and applied in a practical setting, that's really what the newsletter is 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 kind of aimed at. Yep, yep. So if people want to get in touch with that, they can just go to your website, can't they? I think you can link through it through there. Yeah. So if they just Google yeah, you, they'll it, find it pretty quickly. Yeah, it's ten bucks a month. Once again, subscription type of service. We we usually re- we review three articles uh, every single month. Comes out in a PDF format. It's best read on a computer, not on a not, not on a mobile phone. We're working on some of the delivery aspects of that. But once again, it's just something that I'm really bullish on. I think that we're going to kind of expand on in a couple of areas in the years to come. Yep. Cool. And and I assume that the name of it. Research Essentials in Ultra Running was kind of to complement your book, Training Essentials in Ultra Running, as sort of a continuation of that? A little bit. I mean, p- part of it is I'm not that creative. A little bit of backstory. Um, so the book is in the second edition right now. And to, to in all honesty, I hated the title when it first came out. I wanted to come up with something kind of like pithy and catchy and things like that. But I'm very glad that uh, the editor, Casey Blaine, who I was working at the time, she did a very good job of convincing me that I wanted a, a more of a boring title that would last for 20 or 25 years in the space and that would really resonate with with people for for, for decades to come. And so the, the research side of it being kind of tangentially titled Research Essentials for Ultra Running as compared to the book, which is Training Essentials for Ultra Running, is absolutely deliberate because I do plan, I do plan on having similar pieces of content and products that kind of follow that, that follow that philosophy where they're where they're high detail they're high value and they last for long for long long periods of time maybe even after i'm gone mm-hmm. yeah awesome cool so we wanted to talk to you today about something that i think doesn't often get discussed around nutrition at least by nutritionists themselves i guess So we come up with nutrition plans for what we hope athletes will execute food and fluid rise on race day. But almost anyone who's ever done an endurance or ultra endurance event has obviously had that experience where at some stage, unfortunately, things go wrong and the plan goes out the the window. And that's definitely happened for me myself being a nutritionist and, and runner. So I guess a bit like that saying, everyone has a plan until we kind of get punched in the face. So looking at it through the lens of a coach and also obviously a competitor yourself, you've thought about this reality probably better than most and you've come up with a mental framework for dealing with these types of setbacks, whether they're kind of nutrition related or not. And this is included in in your book and in a couple of different blog posts. So before we go through the the kind of the framework, can you take us back to your own experiences, either as an athlete or a coach, when you found things going wrong in a race and how you dealt with that prior to having this framework? 
Well, everybody always asks me about my own experiences, and I tend to lean on that a little bit, but I'm also very cognizant that I don't want those to to, to bias me. And I mean, I have a hundred times more experience as a coach than I do an athlete, maybe even several hundred times more experience as a coach as a, as compared to an athlete. If you, if you rank order it on terms of the events that my athletes have participated in versus the events that I've participated in. And so that's largely my frame of reference. And, and really to, to Steph, to your point of how did I kind of like come up with this model is really an, an observational thing. And it's after going to race after race after race and sitting in aid station after aid station after aid station and going through debrief after debrief after debrief of athletes and trying to figure out kind of what ails them, right? What are the, what are the limiting factors of performance? And that, that was, a, that was a, a, a lens and a framework that was taught to me very early on in my coaching career is, is find what the limiting factors of performance are. And then if you can identify those limiting factors, you can create training interventions for those. And that could be a cardiopulmonary training intervention. That could be a nutritional training intervention. That could be a psychological training intervention, kind of whatever it is. And so it was through that framework where I was noticing all these athletes kind of had the same thing. And, and it's not really what most people, most people think about. The thing that was ailing the athletes was not the thing that was actually ailing them. It was the reaction to it. So they could have a cramp or a blister or a sour stomach or whatever. But at the end of the day, that wasn't the thing that was ultimately limiting their performance. It was how they adapted or did not adapt or adjust or reprogram or whatever vocabulary you want to use to the situation that ultimately kind of hindered their performance because all those problems are the vast majority of them, at least were solvable, right? I went back, I'll go back to a statement that I make, made earlier is that I'm a very solutions oriented person. And so whenever I would hear these things on an athlete debrief, or I would literally be at an aid station with an athlete, my frame of reference is always, how do we solve this problem? I'm going to recognize what's ailing, you know, what kind of what's going on, what's ailing you, but let's try to figure out the solution to it. And the athlete's you know, in large part, kind of lacked a, a, just a basic framework to figure that out. Because, you know, when you put yourself in that position, you've been running for 60 or 70 miles, which might be double, right? Or maybe even triple your longest long run that you've ever done. You're in way deep territory, right? You're in uncharted waters for the vast majority of athletes. And you encounter a problem that problem gets magnified through the difficulty of the task that you have just done. It's not, if you were to present that to that person at mile 10 or mile 20 or earlier on in the race, it's a much different, it's a much different kettle of fish. And so I came up with this framework really just to really just to provide just that, not to provide the actual solution because there's so there's an infinite number of permutations of these problems that crop up in an ultra marathon. I, we, we just went through a few different categories of them, whether they're a physical one, a mental one, shoes, blisters, you know, nutrition, which you guys uh, ma manage a lot. There's infinite numbers of permutations and combinations of how those can actually manifest themselves. And so what I wanted to do was to try to come up with kind of a global strategy where it would fit anything that could any, basically anything under the, anything under the sun and not try to provide some sort of like, if then solution based off of whatever, but just to provide, just to provide a framework. 
So that's really where it started. And uh, to, to be honest with you guys, this uh, this adapt framework that, I, that I've come up with is kind of, it, it, I mean, when I came, first came up with the book several years ago, it, it did get a lot of play because it was new and novel and things like that. But I honestly felt kind of bad because all I'm doing is I'm just adapting, borrowing, borrowing and stealing from like the military and the boy scouts and other people. I'm not doing anything novel. I'm just putting a different acronym on it, which, which is fine, but at least I can kind of like own up to it. But I hope people like really take it to heart because fundamentally as a coach, one of the reasons that it resonates with me the most is, is that I, I am supremely interested in the adaptive process. So I introduce a training stimulus or training intervention to an athlete I kind of don't care what the workload is or what percentage of VO2 max they're running at, or even sometimes even how long the training session is. I care about the adaptive process afterwards. So I wanted to play off of that theme, that adaptation theme, because it's so core to me as a, as a person and come up with something that could actually be kind of universal, not only during the training process, but actually during the race process itself when kind of shit hits the fan. Yeah. And so as a coach, out of interest from Al and I, what's the most common nutrition related things that you've seen go wrong mid-race for your athletes? I mean, I, I'm going to I'm going to take two, two, two categories of that because I can't I was thinking about this in advance. I, I really couldn't pick between <clears throat> between either one of these is kind of a coin flip. The first one is flavor fatigue. Uh, a lot of the sports nutrition products that we use have a sweet profile to them. And that that sweet profile, irrespective of you put a citrus on it or you put more sweet to it or you flavor it, strawberry or whatever it is, that sweet profile tends to just wear on people after hours. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is just general nausea. You know, I think the data kind of the data plays the data kind of teases that out a little bit as well when they ask athletes after races what ailed them GI distress kind of comes to the top of the list. And obviously GI distress has a lot of different flavors, excuse the pun to it that you can uh, kind of compartmentalize it with. But those two things really percolate to the top whenever you kind of drill into whenever you really drill into actually what's going on. It's the flavor fatigue side and just this general nausea that exists from having to consume food over hours and hours and hours. Yep. And then your experience as well, has that kind of been what you experienced as an athlete? You had the flavor fatigue and the nausea or? Yeah, but I learned from my mistakes. So I, I naturally do not have a very good stomach. I learned very early on that I had a, I have a low tolerance for, you know, sweet food. I'm not one of these people that can go up to 120 grams of carbohydrates per hour. I'm just not, I'm just kind of not built like that for whatever reason, as much as I would like to adapt into that uh, types of type of physiology. But I learned from my mistake. So I, I made that mistake maybe one or two or three times. But since then, I've been able to utilize a caloric input rate that works very well for me. And it just happens to be about 250 to 280 calories an hour. And then also be able to rotate in a variety of foodstuffs, whether it's gels or real food, or I used a lot of pizza during a 330K uh, race that I, that I did a few years ago over in Italy called the Tour de Jante. It's very easy to, to procure high quality pizza in Italy, not ironically. But uh, I mean, me personally, once again, I've, I've gone through many of the things that my athletes have gone through. But I mean, one of the things that I like to kind of like pride myself in, and particularly as a coach, is I learned very quickly from those mistakes. 
And I try to apply that to not only myself, but also my athletes whenever they're kind of encountering some of the same things. Yeah. People might think Pete's is a bit of an odd, odd one, but there's a, an Australian guy, Jason English, who won, I think, eight 24-hour mountain bike world championships in a row, yeah. mostly yeah, fueled yeah. by pizza. Yeah. Yeah. One of the benefits of, of ultramarathon, in particular with the kind of the normal athletes that we have, is that they're competing at such a low intensity that they have just a better tolerance for a variety of different foodstuffs. We don't have to go to these like optimized sports nutrition products that deliver carbohydrate at a faster rate, even though that's debatable or digested at a super fast rate or whatever. And that's because we've got more resources to digest more kind of real, real foods. Now that, that proposition diminishes as the duration of the event goes down or the intensity that the athlete can maintain can actually go up. So if we're talking about a more elite athlete, particularly at the, you know, hundred mile, hundred K type of distance, yeah, we still got to use a lot of really heavily engineered foods. But if you're talking about a mid-pack athlete that's doing a 35-hour ultra-trail du Mont Blanc or something like that, which is a very respectable respectable time out there, you can only go so hard for 35 hours. And that in, a, in the way that I've all, that I've always approached it, and especially when I work with nutritionists like like you guys, is that just opens up the opportunity for a bigger variety of food stuff to actually even be considered. Now you can whittle that down to whatever you want to, but at least the opportunity is there because the intensity is so much lower than we see in a lot of other traditional endurance events. Yeah, yeah, totally. And we actually had a post on Instagram just last week, I think, Steph, or maybe even earlier this week about alternative, you know, food products to bars and gels and drinks and things like that, which is been really popular and it was a podcast episode we did a couple of years ago now about that but yeah just thinking about you were saying there you know that those lower intensities obviously you have more opportunities to get in those kind of real foods rather than being reliant on sort of ultra processed drinks and gels and things and and i think the the exact opposite scenario is playing out in professional cycling at the moment we had nikki strobel who's a chef that works with world tour teams uh, at the end of last year and he was saying that you know the rice cakes and things like that on the bike have almost completely disappeared in racing because the intensity the pace of the, the way those races are done now for the last probably four or five years is so intense from start to finish that there's just no opportunity to eat those kind of foods anymore so it is very much horses for courses for sure yeah yeah i i really like that that phrase horses for courses interestingly enough there's a lot of there's a lot of coaches and athletes in the ultra running sphere that have looked at cycling nutrition as a little bit of a blueprint for what, what we should apply. And across the elite spectrum, you could say, yeah, okay, yeah, we might be able to push these elite athletes towards hundred or 120 grams per hour and hundred K type of distance and things like that. Like, like may, like maybe, maybe, maybe it's not quite analogous to cycling, but certainly there's some sort of blueprint there. But when you translate that down the either the either to a longer sorry if you translate that up in a from a duration perspective irrespective of their elite elite or not that starts to break down and then when you try to translate that down into the everyday athlete that's when you start to run into a lot of the fallacies of first off you don't even need that much carbohydrate if your own if your output doesn't actually require it like that's the big that like that's the bigger thing so I think that we have to be in the ultra running sphere really cautious when we look at other sports for blueprints for whatever, whether it's cycling or triathlon or whatever. And I've, I've used those blueprints from a training perspective quite often, 
but we have to be very cautious when we do so because a lot of times the intensity domain isn't quite the right isn't quite the right matchup and you have to have a really good eye on what that intensity domain is in order to figure that out and unless you've you have a lot of domain knowledge working with a pro tour level cyclist it's hard to comprehend how hard they are actually going for the time that they are actually going for that piece of it is i think it, it becomes kind of like lost in the ultra running community when we start to see these kind of like unequivocal translations come come over from it yeah yeah totally and i was just actually just thinking about cycling even that's still relevant to the more recreational cyclists or the non-professional level cyclists because again they're just not working as hard as the the pros and i've just written an article actually for escape collective on exactly that and the fact that you can't just take what's happening at world tour and, and apply it to you because it's you know you probably end up overfueling yourself so that's not published yet but it'll hopefully be out pretty soon but let's let's get on to the adapt framework now and obviously adapt is an acronym for accept diagnose analyze plan and take action so do you want to talk us through each step of the framework yeah i mean steph mentioned earlier that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth and that's an old quote from iron mike tyson you know probably the greatest uh, professional boxer of all time and ironically enough my wife and i were watching a documentary about him just last night on on uh, espn and the, the the saying the saying holds quite true so just as a little bit of a, back, of a background i'm a huge combat sports fan i've been for a long time my wife is not i can barely get her in front of 60 seconds of an MMA fight or a boxing match or anything like that before she gets before she gets too queasy. But she was able to watch all these old Mike Tyson's fights because they were over so quickly. Mm. They weren't very gruesome. And literally Mike Tyson was punching somebody in the mouth who had a plan. And then all of a sudden that plan went out the window and they weren't able to recombobulate themselves to adapt into a new plan. So it's, I think it's very important in a I think it's very pertinent across all sports because we do we do like to have these very nice laid out plans and our color-coded excel spreadsheets and the 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 salient point with mike tyson and what makes it so relevant is that the the more difficult or the more fierce your opponent is the more likely you're going to have to adapt that plan that's not that true with all due respect to the marathoners and the 10K runners out there. That's not all that true with, the, with those types of distances because they're not all that arduous at the end of the day. Whenever you're facing a Mike Tyson, and in our case, it'd be an ultra marathon, as your opponent, that's when you're more likely to get thrown off your game and you're more likely to quote unquote get, get, get kind, of, kind of punched in the mouth. And whenever I discuss this with people, I always like to highlight the first part of the acronym, which is the A, and that's accept. And I think that that is so fundamentally important whenever shit hits the fan, is to really look at the situation and accept it for it, how it is and accept what you are in that moment in time. Because previous to that, you have this plan, okay, I'm going to be at this aid station at 2 p.m. And now I'm going to be at 3 p.m. And I thought that I was going to change over to my carbon fiber plated shoes and freaking power up this climb and this, that, and the other. And I'm going to meet my pacer and they're going to make me feel better. All of a sudden that plan has kind of gone out the window. And and let, let's face it, a lot of a lot of ultramarathon athletes, they, ha they have the, an ego involved in this. And resetting yourself and accepting reality for what it is 
is the key with everything because if you don't do that, you can't think very clearly. I mentioned earlier that people were failing not because of the things that were actually ailing them, but their inability to adapt to what comes next. And ego clouds all of that, all of that decision-making process. So the very first fundamental thing here is just to accept the situation that you're in. It might be good. It might be bad. It's probably different than you originally planned out. Maybe the green color coded on your spreadsheet turned to a red or whatever system that you actually use. But whatever you had like previous, just just accept it for what it is. And, and getting and pulling that curtain back and, and kind of like lifting that fog of the situation is really the is I, I think the kind of like the linchpin in the whole thing. If you really don't do that, the rest of it kind of becomes irrelevant. And if you do do that, and you can't re- remember what D, A, P, and T actually stand for, you usually can figure it out. You know, once again, five, five let- I'm trying to remember five letters at mile 60 of a 100-mile race is not the most convenient <laughs> thing to do unless you had it written down on a card or got your, you know, creator of mind. But if you accept the situation, you can at least think clearly and start to come up with some next steps. So it, so I always take the, the time to highlight the acceptance part of the situation first in order to kind of move forward. So the next part of it is D, diagnose. And that's just a quick inventory. Where am I at? How much further do I have to go to the next aid station? What do I have on me? That's really important because normally people are planning from aid station to aid station or crew point to crew point. And if you thought that from one aid station to the next was going to take you two hours, and now it's going to take you three hours, do I have enough food? Do I have enough electrolytes? Do I have enough fluid? Do I have enough calories? Do I have the right lighting, right? That can actually kind of come into effect. Like, do I actually, did, did I anticipate picking up my lights at this next aid station? Now I don't have them. So diagnose kind of the situation that you're actually in. And the third thing is the next part of it is analyze. So you have to actually analyze what is around you and what can you actually take advantage of to get to the next step. That could be a pacer. That could be the stuff on you. Hey, I've got 300 calories to last me the next 20K or something like that. Do some like rudimentary math in your head, some rudimentary kind of calculations in your plan and, fig- and figure out what the next step is. The third piece of it is plan is then you have to like take all of that information and formulate a step one. I'm going to consume this gel. And you would, you guys probably wouldn't be surprised. I was going to say you were going to be surprised, but you're in the nutrition sphere. So you wouldn't be, you would be surprised the people that get in a pickle and in particular, an energy pickle or a nutrition pickle and come into an aid station, completely dilapidated, bonking, low glycogen and things like that, and have three gels in their pack. Like you'd be surprised at how often that actually happens. And what that is, is a failure to analyze what is actually on them. You have calories on you. Your stomach is not that bad. Take one or at least put a chew in your cheek and try to like absorb some calories that way. Or like my my point with that is, is plan out what plan and analyze what you actually have on you and come up with some sort of sequence of steps. I think too, sometimes it's also that failure to accept right up front. Yeah. Like if you haven't got to that, you're not in the frame of mind where you can do the analyze part. Yeah, hundred percent. And and then the last piece, and if the if there is a second most important piece, it's this one. So if anybody out there has kind of like lost track of the acronym and you don't want to go out and like look it up or whatever, remember the bookends, right? The first piece of the bookend is accept. And the last piece of the bookend is take action. 
So whatever you have thought about or whatever you have delegated to your pacer or your crew to actually figure out, it's your responsibility as an athlete to do the actual intervention, to take the gel, to sit down and fix your feet, to hydrate better, to go slower on the next climb. Whatever you have formulated in your head with the plan, actually go and do that. That might be the right action to take it might not be the wrong action to take but you're but you're never going to know unless you actually do it so actually execute the plan that you have come up with or your crew or your pacer has kind of helped you come up with that is the, that is the right that that is the that the kind of the the last step in everything and 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 once again whenever i've seen this kind of like work out in real time the focus is always on the bookends which are accept and then take action the diagnose, analyze, plan, those things kind of get jumbled up in the middle based on the situation. And do I have to do one before the other? And then can I reformulate my plan and things like that? Don't get caught up in the minutia, right? Accept where you're at, formulate some sort of plan, and then actually execute that plan. If you get those three pieces of it right, you're going to give yourself a chance. Because one thing that I can tell you after being to dozens and dozens and dozens of ultra marathons, and seeing athletes come through aid stations, both athletes that I don't work with, is that problems very rarely fix themselves. If you are having an issue in an ultra, you better take some corrective action to fix that. Because otherwise, the difficulty of the race and the duration of the race is going to compound whatever is ailing you at the moment in time. You might get lucky and magically come out of that hole that has happened. I'm not going to discount that. Sometimes it's just the case, but that is rare. That's, that's really, really rare. More often athletes are, are, are very conscientiously and deliberately trying to turn this Titanic of a ship around and it might take 10 miles. It might take 20 miles. Luckily in an ultra marathon, you get a long period of time to like turn these things around. You have, have to actually deliberately do it in order to really make an impact. I think that's so important because, as you said, you may not always know that this is the right action to take. Sometimes you're going to be guessing as much yeah. as anything, but it's always that, well, if you change nothing, then nothing is going to change. And so you're going to continue to get what you've got. And, and as you said, yeah, the, the duration is only going to compound that and, and make it worse over time. And, and I wonder whether sometimes, too, that refusal to take action goes right back to refusal to accept the situation. Yeah. You, usually athletes, once again, we're stubborn lots. That's kind of like our, our double-edged sword, right? It's the blessing and a curse at the same time. We're stubborn during the training process. We'll kind of go through thick and thin, all different types of weather. We're going to wake up at four in the morning and put our training runs in and things like that. That stubbornness can rear its ugly head when you're in a race and something's go and something is going wrong and you just double down or continue to what you currently do, to what you're currently doing. Like that is a full, that is a, just a, a full blown way, 100% sure way to perpetuate whatever has been ailing you into whatever. I mean, that's what turns a bad race into a DNF, right? And many of these times when people are kind of invoking this whole adapt philosophy, let's face it, that's the situation you're in. You're going from a good race to a bad race and you're trying to prevent a DNF or even a, uh, even a worse race. Very, and I've been in these situations where you can turn an average race into a great race. That happens every once in a while, and even at the elite level, that that happens every once in a while. I've, and I've I've had that with my athletes actually, but it, but 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 it's pretty rare. 
most of the time, what you're just trying to do is you're trying to turn it around just to make the situation sustainable. And sometimes if the race is long enough, that sustainable situation actually can end up being a, be, being a pretty darn good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, well, let's have a look at maybe a couple of examples. We may we'll start with a simple one, but a common one, as you said, flavor fatigue. And then we might talk you and Steph as well about the, the gut issue side of things. But let's start with flavor fatigue because that one's probably a, a little bit more straightforward. So you're, you know, 8, 10 hours, 12 hours into a race or something like that, and you're just completely sick of sweet foods. So I guess the first acceptance part is simply, I don't want to eat this anymore, or I can't eat this anymore, drink this, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll give you guys a, a, a great, very high caliber, incredible outcome situation that I just happen to be involved of. And it's all involved in and it's all public. So the athlete wouldn't mind me mentioning this. Two, two years ago, one of my athletes, Katie Scheid, won the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, which for the listeners out there that aren't familiar with this race, that is the the, the pinnacle of trail and ultra running. There's kind of two races that sit at the very top. There's the Western States Endurance Run and the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. And that race played out for her in a very uneven fashion. She took the lead very early and was kind of on course record pace. And then she relinquished the lead at about the 50 or 60K mark and had a really, really bad patch until about the 100K mark and then and, and then kind of turned around and won it. And the, the race is very, and I was crewing for her during that race as her, as her coach, which uh, is an honor and honestly pretty, pretty rare for me because I usually have multiple people in the race and this just happened to be one where I could, I could be her, her personal crew and, uh, very serendipitously, or I guess a feature of the race is that they have good live coverage around the whole mountain where they constantly follow the leaders around everywhere. They follow them into the aid stations, out of the aid stations and things like that. And so I am sitting at the 100-kilometer mark, literally watching the TV and watching this race devolve from this athlete. At once, she was leading the race, and then she you know, gets overtaken, and I could kind of like see her get slower and slower and slower. And um, I'm watching the coverage, and I watch her go into a particular aid station, and I have her nutrition and you know planning sheet and things like that just right in front of me. And uh, I noticed that she goes into the aid station and starts grazing from different things on the table as compared to what was on her sheet. And she had a lot of sweet, you know, very traditional endurance sports foods on her sheet earlier. And she started taking basically bread and cheese and meats. Typical French rice. Yeah, exactly. So very about face from a sweet uh, flavor profile to kind of a more of a savory real food uh, flavor profile. So I took that as a little bit of a cue as I'm sitting in some random, you know, village in Switzerland to we need to change her nutrition plan. I could literally see it right in front of me on the TV at about three hours to prepare for the next aid station. And I took that as a cue to raid the very the nearest uh, grocery store that I could that I could find in Champagne, this very small village in Switzerland. And I found bread and butter and salt and all these kind of like savory foods. And I brought it into the aid station with her. And I I very vividly remember taking this this paper spreadsheet that we had in front of us that had her, you know, gels and chews and things like that. And I folded it up and just put it in her bag and just kind of made it up. And the ending of that story is a happy one, right? She won the race and kind of turned her race around and things like that. It was was a really great performance. But the learning lesson for everybody out there is, is that you can take cues from what you actually visually see out on a aid station table. Many times your body will, will tell you what you are actually craving. 
So if you are going into an aid station and you are sick of whatever flavor that you had just been consuming, take a look around. There's usually a lot of stuff there. There's salty things, there's savory things, there's crunchy things, there are things that are in liquid, there are things that are in solid, there are things that are mashed and in kind of a gelatinous form. You have all different flavors and textures and things like that in front of you. And many times all you have to do is just look and observe. Instead of thinking, right, oh shit, I can't stand another gel, accept that situation and look around you, right? Diagnose the situation around you to go back to the acronym diagnose the situation around you and look around the aid station table. Many, many times you will come across something where you just say, yes, I want that. And you can, you can absolutely fuel off that. But also what I would encourage athletes is use that as a little bit of a clue. So whatever is different, you can take that and also kind of perpetuate it the way down the race, not just in that one particular aid station, but also for the for the miles and kilometers and things like that, that that go ahead, you can lean into that for any number of period of time. It just does. It doesn't have to be limited to that one isolated situation as, as the story that I just went through illustrated, right? Katie came in in the aid station. She took a bunch of bread and cheese. She sees me 30 kilometers later, 40 kilometers later or whatever it is. I'm kind of providing a similar type of, of, of flavor profile because that's the, those are the things that she was craving at the time. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think, you know, obviously there's not always situations where people have crew that can kind of adapt on the fly like you're obviously able to in that scenario. So I guess there's there's probably two parts to that. One is, you know, as you were saying before about sort of analysing is being resourceful and going, well, what is available to me? And it could even be you have salt capsules and you open them up to get the salt out of them so you can taste them. That might be the way to get kind of a, a salty profile into your on your tongue. I've done if that. That's too. the only thing that's available. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I did that to yep. a drink. I did that to a drink. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And the other one that sort of occurs to me, and I know Steph, you've got an acronym for this, which is all P's, and I can't remember exactly what it is. Something about piss poor performance, but it's about being prepared. It's about kind of anticipating what are the things that could go wrong so that you have those savory options available to you. So obviously in that situation, there's crew that can go out and, and quickly source stuff. But if you're in a self-sufficient type event, that's not always the case or not always available. And probably the extreme example of this, and I've heard this situation is an event like Marathon de Saab where it's completely self-sufficient. You bring your all your stuff, you're cut off basically from the rest of the world for the duration of the event. And so you've only got what you've got there. And if you haven't got those things that, that are going to hit the spot from a flavor point of view, the only thing you can do is barter with the other people in the race. And, and that does happen. You know, people barter for like potato crisps and stuff because they're savory, they're crunchy. It's different to the, you know, the gel that turned into like some hot gooey mess in the sun in, in the Sahara desert kind of thing. So yeah, I, I think that sort of analyzing and, and trying to be resourceful with what's around you is really important. Did I get the acronym right, Steph? Yeah, pretty much. Proper preparation helps prevent piss poor performance. There you go. Yeah, it's old, old military one, or at least most people in North America will recognize that as a military phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk now, and, and maybe you can talk through it, Steph, with, with Jason around sort of the gut issue side of things. So, you know, you're out in the trail, you're starting to get a bit of nausea or some other kind of gut issue, maybe food's starting to come back up or something like that, and you've, you've got to do something about it. And so you've got to go through that ADAPT model 
you can probably talk to it from your own experience, Steph, as a runner or, or you know, people that you've worked with over the years. And do you want to sort of talk through that and, and bounce off, Coop? Yeah, do you want me to go first or? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So, well, I guess, you know, if you've got an example that I had when I was running Trans Rockies uh, race is, I guess, gut issues, not being able to keep it down. So I just packed really super sweet gels with me mostly. So I guess in terms of using the ADAPT is that I had to accept that situation and then use what I had on me until I was getting to the next checkpoint. And so that was then, well, I only really had the sweet gels. So I just kind of reduced the amount that I was taking in. And I guess for me as a dietitian, I also knew that as long as I could have a bit of that taste in my mouth, that that was still giving me a bit of a, a buzz. And then, you know, then it was going then to the, the aid station, which they thankfully had, you know, amazing options there. And then, you know, switching and realising that I needed to, to change from that sweet option to, to the more savoury. And then just, you know, accepting that I also needed to slow down the intake because my gut wasn't able to accept it at the time. So it was more of a, a trickle feed and be patient uh, as well and accept that, you know, things can turn around. I can only do what I can do now. And then when it starts to get better, then I can start to, I guess, feed more. So that would have been how I kind of used the, the adapt approach there, I guess. Please add in there, Coop. Well, I mean, what you're mentioning is something that is extremely common and I think one one of the one of the confounding factors that we have in ultra is the duration of the event is almost always longer than any sort of duration that we can create in training. We can recreate the intensity of the event actually quite easily from a training perspective. And okay, let's go out and do a five hour run, six hour run, seven hour run, even things like that at the intensity of the event. But when the when the events are one and a half X, two X, or maybe even three X of that longer training run, sometimes the caloric rate that was sustainable at that duration isn't sustainable over a longer period of time. And so you run into these issues of just being too full or not being to digest things and, and things like that. So I think for the listeners out there, it's it's first to understand it's it's kind of quite common. Now, there, there are things that we can do to, to try to mitigate that as much as possible. And the first thing is, is just fundamentally, and I, you guys will appreciate, you guys will probably appreciate this as nutritionists, but I'm going to say it as well because it just goes so underrepresented, is in training, taking the calories at the rate that you think you're going to take it in during the race. I, I am continually perplexed by the number of athletes that want to take in 100 or 150 calories an hour in training which you can get away with. Absolutely. hundred percent. You can get away with that in a four hour run, three hour run, things like that. Nobody's discounting that. But then during the race, they want to try to double that to 250 calories or 300 calories an hour. And I always liken that to, well, you're not, you're not like doubling your speed during a race. You're not going to run your training runs at 10 minutes per mile and then go run your race at five minutes per mile, that would be absurd, right? That's the same analogy as is doubling your caloric rate during, during, during the actual race. So the first thing is, is just actually practicing and training. There, there, there is some 
limited but promising evidence that some sort of gut training trials can actually improve that. And what I mean by that is, is going over your cal- what, whatever you think your caloric intake rate will be. Let's just say it's 250 calories an hour. Going over that during training as some sort of part of the adaptive process. But at the very minimum, do what you're going to do, dur- do during the race. And then if you do get into a race, realizing that duration is kind of the, the conflating factor here, you can take two very easy steps to start the mitigation process. And Steph, and Steph actually mentioned one of these when she was going through Trans Rockies. And that's the, first off to slow down and cool off. If it's already a cold race, you can't cool off. You can definitely slow down. But if it's during a hotter race or a warmer race, you take those two steps first, 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 first. And you have got a good pathway to not making the problem worse at the very least, and then maybe actually making it better so that it's sustainable uh, down the road. The third that you, thing that you can do after the first two, and this is my opinion, you guys can chime in on it if you want to, but the thing that you can do after that, after you slow down and cool off, and I think that it's, I do think that this is an after one, is start to switch to smaller portions. And this gets harder to do depending upon the types of products that you're taking in, right? If you're taking in a gel and it's in a hundred calorie package, it's hard to divide that package into two 50 calorie portions. You can, but usually it ends up kind of a shit show in your pack and you know, you've got sticky fingers and sticky pack and everything like that, but you can at least try. If you're using a, a gummy type of product, you can absolutely take half of one of those. 10 calorie portion, 15 calorie portion, one of those uh, gummy products as opposed to a 20 or 30 calorie portion, really effective way to do it. You can hold it in your mouth for a longer period of time. That's kind of an old trick that a lot of endurance athletes have used. But if you kind of use like some of the simple things, slow down, cool off very first, just to try to get things under control and switch to smaller portions, this fullness feeling, or I can't take any more calories in or whatever, those are some more tried and true things that I think a lot of athletes can try, can try irrespective of their experience level, because it's kind of universal in any type of situation, except for if you're already in a cool race, you obviously don't have the opportunity to cool off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think what you've highlighted there really well is Steph was talking about on the, like the preparation side of things. And you mentioned it then Coop, like the gut training side of stuff is obviously important. Having those adaptations prior to, to racing, if it's going to be hot and you're coming from a cold environment, heat acclimating, you know, whatever it is. So that, that physical preparation is important, but the other form of preparation, which I think is crucial to hear is the education component. So when you get to the analyze, you actually know how to analyze and you can come up with a plan because you understand a bit about the issue. So you know enough about gut issues to be able to come up with a reasonable plan. You know that cooling off is going to be important. So you have to have a bit of knowledge there to do that as well. And that's obviously, again, going to come in the preparation phase rather than, you know, you're not going to suddenly learn that out on the trail unless someone runs past and yells at you. Yeah. I mean, and one of the benefits of having, you know, a a coach or a nutritionist work with you or be at the race, and this is one of the reasons why I go to a lot of races is because it's hard to go over everything in advance. And I I hope that by at least me and myself being at the race, I can provide a little bit of that knowledge that is almost impossible to cover in its entirety beforehand because there's so there's infinite number of permutations of all of these issues that can kind of like manifest themselves. And we were just talking about GI stuff, but then you go down the whole cascade of psychology and blisters and effort management and kind of things like that. And it's, it's just hard to go over all these different, different types of contingencies. 
So I do think that an additional advantage that you can put in there is not only to educate yourself on what some of these issues could be and some very simple mitigation tactics, but also make sure that your crew knows that as well if you happen to have crew accessible for the race. And they don't have to be experts in it. You know, most people who are coming into crew, they're just family, friends who are just want to see you out and run and, you know, kind of be part of the experience. But if you can at least take some of the highlights and make them responsible for it, first off, that gives them a great job. If, if, you know, shit ever does hit the fan and they feel good about actually, you know, coming and incurring you, it's easy when it's easy, but when it's hard, it's really hard as is what I've learned by being at these things. If you educate your crew just a little bit and give them just a, just a little bit of directive, they normally can, they, they can be surprisingly effective at trying to help troubleshoot as some of these things uh, come down the pipeline. Totally. And, and just as you were saying that, I was picturing in my head those stereotypical movies of like the pilots died, the planes crashing, and the civilians in the cockpit like furiously pulling out the flight manual and looking through it to work <laughs> out all the stuff that they've got to do to land the plane and survive. You see it in all these movies. It's it's so cheesy, but it's, it's, it's almost like that, isn't it? It's like cramping quickly, look up, you know, what, what do I do here? And yeah, so obviously the, the more knowledge you can have, the better. But as you said, having the 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 crew across that and i know a lot of sort of high level ultra endurance athletes even in you know 24-hour mountain biking and things actually almost having instructions for their crew like if i come in and and this is happening this is what i want you to do about it kind of thing as well i I can tell you very bluntly that at the elite level event day support is is starting to become a separator and what I mean by that is, is it's starting to determine at least part of the outcome. And it's actually kind of cool to see. I mean, we were talking about our cycling analogies earlier, right? I mean, one of the reasons that these pro tour teams spend so much money on their race execution, right? They've got everything from stuff printed on their handlebars to all the radio communication, all the scouting they do and things like that. The reason that they do that is, first off, they can because they have the financial and human resources to do it. But second, they realize it makes a difference in terms of the outcome. We're starting to see that in trail and ultra running where the elite runners are starting to recognize that the people that are with them acutely during the race, with just one day, right, can make a difference in the outcome of the race because you can only prepare for so much, right? You can do all the physical training and you can do all the course recon and you can do all the nutritional trials and things like that. But when the race unfolds, there's something to, there's something about having a high quality team behind you that can make your day that much more effective. And it's particularly accentuated when you go through a rough patch or you're having a medium day and you need to have a really good day when, when, those, when those types of things become big separators. And I think that it's also true for the, for the everyday athletes out there. I realize that you can't bring in institutional you know, professional 10 member, you know, high quality coach crews. It's just not, you know, this is just not logistically feasible. But if you take a few hours in advance of the race and then write some instructions down for your crew, even if you don't use it, it's at least going to be beneficial for you to go through the exercise. And then if for whatever reason you do have to use it, it's that much more beneficial for the crew because they at least have a blueprint to work from as opposed to just kind of like making stuff up on up on the fly, which may or may not be effective. Yeah, yeah, totally. Have you seen any athletes or have you worked with any athletes that have actually had like the the ADAPT framework or something like written on a little card that they carry around with them while they're racing? I, I, 
I wonder if there's someone out there that's read your book who's got like adapt and like the words tattooed <laughs> on their arm or something in case, in case the I shit hits a fan and they, they quickly I, just roll their arm over and go, oh, what do I do? I hope not. I mean, I have seen people have it on index cards in their drop bags and things like that. People have read my mm. book and athletes and things like that. But more, more common though are, are the kind of the if-then scenarios. And I do see this a lot. So they're taking that adapt framework and they're moving it into what they think is going to be the more common if then scenarios for them. So if this happens, these, this is the way I'm going to triage it. And that could be either a reminder for, for them when they actually see that index card in a drop bag or something like that, or it could be a reminder for a crew member. So absolutely, absolutely. I do see this because once again, I mean, ultra marathon is the great test case for, when you are going longer than you have gone before and you have more unknowns than knowns. And whenever that is the case, you have to try to do as good a job of as you can as preparing for all of the unknowns. You might not be able to line item detail all of them, but at least if you have a framework for kind of some of the more common ones, even if you have something that's kind of like tangentially related to some of the things that you have written down, it's remarkably more powerful to have a framework set out in advance than it is to try to make stuff up on the fly. Because as you guys know, that takes up, you know, all the thinking and consternation and things like that, that takes up resources just like running faster actually does. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, just thinking, you know, as you're saying that we've talked about this, obviously in the context of ultra trail running, where the length, the duration of the thing makes this more likely but this could be relevant to Ironman it could be relevant yeah particularly for people who maybe haven't done many races before they're kind of new to the sport and and even marathon running people that are new into marathon running these sort of things can still go wrong in in those kind of events you know the the elite guys probably not as you said that the duration's not that challenging from that perspective but if you're new to it, it it still is challenging and it's still relevant yeah anytime there's a element of unknown Right. I, the analogy that I always give is in the marathon world, right, where everybody wants to do an 18 mile long run in advance of a 26 mile race. It gives you a certain chunk of unknown, I guess is what I'm saying. And the more that you've experienced that period between your known training and the, and the uncertainty of the event and the, the smaller that gap actually is, the better handle you have on the situation. But you're absolutely right, Alan, for athletes that are new to the sport or athletes that are getting into their first marathon or even the kind of their first 10K that's still, from a proportional perspective, as big of an unknown as anything else. And I think that this general sentiment of predict what you can predict up to the amount of time that you can predict it for, and then realize that it might be different after that, that sentiment is going to run true irrespective of the distance. Yeah, totally. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to finish up with a couple of quick bonus round questions. Steph, I think you're going to take us through these. This has been a great episode, but yeah, we'll, we'll get to a close. So Steph, hit us with some bonus round questions. What's getting you excited about training or nutrition in the sports you work with in 2024? Any new or emerging trends that you feel have real potential rather than just hype is the first kind of question. I mentioned it from the onset. I, I'm yeah. honest, I'm really bullish on this AI product. Like I understand that there are pitfalls into it and you know, the potential to produce just a lot of garbage content and hallucinations and things like that. I figure that, it, that I've got, and I've got p- good people around me that can help counsel me kind of on the landscape and where those pitfalls act- actually are. 
But after sinking a lot of time and effort and gathering expertise in it, it's, it's just something that I'm kind of bullish on kind of across the landscape. And I'll even give an example that's not related to coaching or whatever. Some of the medical professionals in the sphere are actually starting to use machine learning models to better predict athletes that are more susceptible to hyponatremia or getting acute kidney injuries like rhabdomyolysis and things like that. And I think that the application there is actually quite cool. So the, so the, the, the application would be you screen somebody in advance using some sort of, you know, blood draw or saliva metrics or things like that. And then based off of that, we have a profile of the entire field that can risk stratify who is at high risk, medium risk, and low risk based off of this particular profile that's created. In an ultramarathon situation, you could then better follow those people around to see if they are going to get themselves in, in a spot of bother. Because one of the problems that the medical uh, community has, particularly in ultramarathon, is when they are trying to diagnose people at a finish line, who's hyponatremic, who ha- who's going to get rhabdo, who do we need to put on dialysis and like things that are like actually really consequential. They're using a visual assessment in almost all cases. And everybody at the end of an ultramarathon is screwed. They all look horrible. And so to put the, to put a medical professional in that situation where they're like, you know what, I think we need to, I think we need to talk to Alan and see if he has, you know, some, if, if he's really hyponatremic or whatever. Versus I really think we need to look at Steph and see if she is hyponatremic. It's almost impossible for those medical professionals to actually discern what is going on visually. So adding some sort of screening tool that we can use machine learning to get a better fix on, I think is a wonderful use case for some of this artificial technology to to, to kind of creep its way into the ultramarathon sphere. It's not going to be limited to me spitting out training programs or analyzing heart rate files or anything like that. I do think that there's like material medical types of consequences that we can apply in a really positive fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. And is there a race or event that you are most looking forward to in 24, either yourself as an athlete um, or from a coaching perspective or just as a sports fan? Um, I mean, I'm as, as a coach, I've always got to look forward to the Western States 100 and the ultra tour de Mont Blanc just for whatever, for whatever combination of events this year, I'm going to have seven elite women in the Western States 100. And that's a little bit overwhelming to me, to be honest with you, that that's a lot. They all have the potential to be in the top 10 and it would be miraculous if they all did. But um, that's a cool situation. I've never had kind of that dis- density of really good women be, be in that race and also have two very good men in that race that could, that, that could place quite well. So from a coaching perspective, I'm looking forward to that first. And then the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc uh, second. Those are all, always the highlights of, uh, of every single year. From, from a personal standpoint, I just, uh, just a couple of days ago, I signed up for this uh, race called the Muggy on Monster, which is, sounds, sounds like a stupid name, but it's named after the Muggy on Rim in uh, Arizona, which is this kind of like high plateau. And it's known as this very gnarly, rocky, technical uh, 100 mile run that is one of the more difficult ones in the country. So 
I'm going to lace up the shoes and, and try that one on for size. It just happens to be the week after the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. So after I'm over in France and per- perfectly tapered, of course, because, you know, I won't be doing anything besides worried about my own training during UTMP. That's a, that's a joke, by the way. Uh, I'm going to take that race on the one week after the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it because it seems like it's just my kettle of fish. Yep. And being very technical. There might be some some use for your adapt framework. There you go, for sure. I'm sure they'll have more than a few uh, twisted ankles. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time, Coop. I think this has been a really good framework to chat through. Some really great examples here, and I think people will learn a lot from this. You know, we can have all these different podcast episodes about all these different aspects of nutrition and the things that we should be doing and the things we should be planning and preparing for. But you know, as we've said, you know, what's a plan? when it all goes wrong in a race. So you need a plan for that as well. So yeah, I think this will be a a really popular episode and and hopefully give people a a really good framework to work for. So thanks so much for your time and great to catch up again. I appreciate it. It's always good to catch up and thank you guys for your work. You know, you guys, I always appreciate people that are at the coal face of working with athletes and you guys are exemplary professionals in that, in that regard where you do a lot of good for athletes and you recognize both the value of looking at some of the scientific literature, but also some of the constraints that it, that it presents when we're presenting that scientific literature from a practical perspective for real people in real situations. And I'm always very appreciative of professionals that have that, that have that tact within their, within their practice. Yeah. Awesome. Thank Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much, Jason. I'm going to let you summarize this one out. I'm going to do this super quick. And I think that's just the framework that Jason gave, I think is a fantastic way of looking at things and thinking about it when things go wrong. You know, that first part of it, as we said, accepting the situation you're in is really probably the most important part of the whole thing. As he said, you know, it's really the bookends, the accept and the, the take action, but certainly accepting the situation you're in. And that's in terms of, you know, ego, expectations, all those kind of things. And then once you sort of get through that, that point of acceptance, then you can kind of think clearly rather than panicking about what you're doing and then get on with the actual problem solving the the scenario that's in front of you. So the D in the adapt model, diagnose what is the actual issue that's happening, analyze what have I got available to me in terms of resources, where's my next aid station, all that kind of stuff that allows you to then come up with a plan, the P, and then take action with the T and then do something about it. And again, as Coop said, if you don't take action, nothing's going to change. So if you're in a hole, whether it's the bonking, the cramping, whatever, if you do nothing, don't expect anything is going to change. So to avoid that DNF or uh, you know salvage that race, you've really got to take action. And, and as we said, sometimes you don't always know what the right action is. And But if you don't do anything, you might as well try something. So yeah. Mm, Yeah. And I was going to say, you know, like normally you and I, at least when we're doing our race nutrition plans and those types of things, we always, you know, tend to have that backup plan Mm. that we talk through to to athletes. But sometimes they probably don't always tune into it, you know, because we're being positive. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's important just to, to try and make sure you do always look at that backup plan or at least your support crew. You know, you provide that backup plan as well to your support crew. Uh, so, yeah, if things don't go your way, they know what they need to have ready for you when you're coming through the checkpoint or whatever it is, depending on the sport. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, Al, we're going to follow up, uh, at least you are, uh, this episode with a 72B. Yeah, yeah. So this kind of follows up just from that conversation then is like, you know, it's, it's one thing to accept the situation you're in. It's one thing to take action, but sometimes you don't always know what is the best action to take. And so that's the focus of the next episode of the podcast. So I'm going to have a look at, you know, what do I do in a race when my nutrition plan falls apart? So looking more at the solution side of it now. So what are the common nutrition issues that occur during a race and what are the potential actions that you can take that might help you get out of trouble in that particular scenario. So we'll look at the cramping, we'll look at the gut issues, we'll look at the flavor fatigue, we'll look at the bonking and what you can do in those situations that might be helpful. So some people will already be very aware of those things and that's absolutely fine. They just need to sort of get their head clear in the moment and and take that action. They know what to do. But in some situations and people are new to the sport, maybe completely unaware of what to do in those scenarios or, or want a refresher on it. So I think this is be a really good good one to have a look at that. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. And so just a, a wrap up, a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter, aka X. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you do listen on one of these platforms and you have a few seconds to spare, then we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. And remember also that there's now 72 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them going back to November 2020. And if you would like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And you can now get your hands on the ebook through fuelingendurance.com. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or the racing, and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. If you haven't heard it on the podcast and you don't want to let them know you don't know the answer, shoot it to us. We'll answer it for them. And then you can sound like the expert. Take the credit. Yeah. <laughs> but as always we will love and leave you and I just want to say a big thank you for putting up with me Al and also thank you to the listeners for putting up with me mm. all right thanks Steph <laughs> awesome we'll uh, see everyone in the well I'll see everyone in the next podcast couple weeks time all right cool bye see ya bye